0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Before we jump into today's incredible conversation, I'd like to tell you about Energy by Design. Energy by Design is my game-changing wellbeing program for educators. It's a space to connect, share, laugh and learn with others that understand the demands of school life. In this 10-week program, I share wellbeing skills and strategies that have helped countless educators to feel good, function well, and reignite their passion for teaching. The program includes access to an exclusive conversation series with wellbeing experts and educators, and weekly videos, handouts, and group coaching call. The group coaching call will be Thursday evenings at 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. If you're ready to experience more energy, clarity and confidence in your life, Energy by Design is for you. Join the waitlist now and be the first to know when enrolments open. On with today's show. In this episode, I chat with Daisy Turnbull. Daisy is a secondary teacher and for the past five years has been the Director of Wellbeing at an independent girls' school in Sydney. Her subject areas are history, business studies and studies of religion. Daisy has taught across school systems including spending some time at a behavioural school working with students from a range of backgrounds. Daisy is the author of two books, 50 risks to take with your kids and 20 questions to ask your teens. In this episode we discuss how conversations can strengthen our relationships, the consequences of avoiding awkward and challenging conversations, how we can improve the quality of our conversations and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Daisy Turnbull. Daisy, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation, Daisy, because I know what happens when two teachers get together. We can have some really interesting conversations. It could it could get a bit dangerous, but I think we'll keep it pretty pretty tidy. Yeah, we'll keep it tidy. And I love to hear people's stories about what drew them to teaching and how did they become a teacher?
1: Yeah, so I'm a I'm a second career teacher. So I did arts commerce at Sydney Uni and then I worked in advertising for a few years and I actually For a few, uh, I think I was there for three years at Ogilvy. And then I went and started a small design company with a business partner. He was the creative person. I was the producer. But while I was doing that, so I think we're in 2009 now, I started studying teaching and I thought that I would do the course really slowly and maybe take two or three years. I was getting married in 2010. I kind of thought maybe take time off for having kids and then maybe train as a teacher. In my mind, it was going to be a very slow progression into this new career as being a teacher but as is my personality, but also the reaction I had to teaching, I just fell in love with it. And I overloaded my semesters. I got my prac done as soon as possible. And then I was teaching. So in 2012, I did my, I think it was a term one prac at a school. And then I went uh, overseas because my brother was getting married in April, 2012. And I came back and I had blocks for casual teaching at that school and then I was kind of I was teaching it was it was, it was happening wow yeah so then I was and then I did um Actually, I, so I was at a, a systemic Catholic school at first that's where I did my um my prac and I was doing there for a few months and then one of the teachers there put me in touch with the school that was a behavioral school and they were like you should go here and I thought okay, like I'll see how it goes. And it was, I think it was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. And then from there I went to St. Cath's and I was there for nine years.
0: Wow. I love hearing people's stories of becoming a teacher. And I also think there is so much benefit in having some life experience before you step back into the classroom. I stepped into the classroom as a 21-year-old and now I look back and think, wow, I was still living at home. I had very minimal life experience. I had zero training in how to deal with humans. And it's a big ask for young people.
1: It is. And, you know, I was at this education summit the other day and there was a discussion around, you know, one thing we don't do in Australia is recognise the skills of teachers outside of the classroom and obviously we want to keep teachers in the classroom as much as possible but when they leave you know they often feel like they need to fully retrain but we forget the experience of teaching has so many skills built into it that can be applied to different industries. So you say you had no life experience. I would say your life experience of being in the classroom for that long is far greater than mine being in advertising.
0: Uh, It's so interesting to think about it and the different things that bring us to teaching. Some people really love to be in their content. They love their curriculum. And then some people are more drawn to that pastoral side of it. When you started teaching was there an element that you were drawn to more than others I am both of those things so
1: I love the content of history and I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second but I'm not a curriculum person like I love history I love studies of religion I love business studies Um, I love teaching those subjects you know as, as you say you kind of have to there's that great story of Taylor Swift being told she has to pick a rabbit to chase out oh, country music country pop. You know, you can't chase two rabbits at once. And for me, it was always going to be that pastoral thing. But I would say that pastoral stuff, technical term for it, works really well in the humanities. Humanity subjects have a natural conversation that you're having, you're connecting it to modern life, or, you know, our real lives, the current world, and that is building good conversations. And I think conversations are at the heart of good pastoral stuff. My funny content story is that my major at uni was Renaissance history, 14th, 15th century Italy. That is on no curriculum in New South Wales. I know Renaissance and Revolution is in Victoria, but it's not in New South Wales. So when I got my teaching degree, they looked at my major and they went, well, because you've studied neither modern nor ancient, you are qualified for both. and and I like I did a bit of modern I think I did one subject that went ancient to modern like I've done a lot of history and so I decided that I was going to do modern I was like I love modern history it's what I do my dad reckons that it's like the greatest disappointment I've ever been because he is a massive ancient history nerd and so for him he's like why don't you teach ancient and I said because I love it I want to read books about it not to collect information for class, but because I love it and keep it as a love rather than as a teaching
0: area. Yes, that is so interesting because sometimes when we teach something all day, the idea of coming home and then enjoying it, that pleasure can sometimes be (laughs) drained away. And I love how you thought about that humanities piece and how it lends itself to really interesting conversations. And I also think that's true of phys ed and health and they're the subjects that I've always taught, is that you naturally have really interesting conversations with students. And that's why I was so drawn to your book, 50 Questions to Ask Your Teens, because it is really about conversations and how much conversations really matter and also I think at the moment we're losing the art of conversations and so why do you think conversations matter? Conversations matter because they connect
1: us with other people and they set off that vagus nerve which is the nerve that basically can be a huge stress relief. And conversations are in many ways a cure for loneliness. I volunteer at Lifeline and I would say 95% of the calls are people who are just incredibly lonely and having a conversation helps them. And so I think in that sense, conversations are good. Why are conversations good for teenagers specifically? And you would know this more than me. I think that we have some really big problems that are happening at the moment. And part of that is because everyone thinks everyone else is having the conversation with the teen that. I personally believe, and I say this as a parent and teacher, that parents should be having. And I do think the buck stops with parents. You know, it's like when you're a teacher and you are doing your registers at the end of the year that you should have been doing week by week, but no one remembers to do that. And you're sitting there going, yes, I did explain the difference between BC and AD to year seven. I can tick that off the list. For parents, they need to go, have I spoken to my teen about what makes a good person, about what is a good friend? What about consent, about porn? Because if you're not having that conversation Someone else is. And that's why I think the idea of handing parents a book going here are 50 questions to ask your kids and 50 questions, conversations to have. At its weakest, at its cheapest point, it's a to do list to make sure these conversations have
0: happened. Yes. And I think that's such an important point that we can get into this habit of thinking, or someone else is talking to them. Surely the school's talking about them. It's in the media. So it's surely happening in schools. But a lot of people don't realise just because it's a headline, it doesn't mean that it's filtered through to systemic change. And that change takes a long period of time. And that every school is different. Every school that I have worked in has a different take on different areas, depending on the system in which you're in. If it's public, independent, Catholic, and understanding all these nuances Mm. and then, understanding that for some family these conversations it's easy and then for another family oh no we don't talk about this this is not happening and then there's also that tension for schools as they're trying to raise more content you're going to have one family that says we don't want our child to be a part of this and then one family saying thank you thank you I didn't want to have the conversation at least you've given us some things to think about so now we can start to have these conversations at home so what is the risk if we avoid difficult and awkward conversations Well, I think it means
1: that your kids or your teens will get that information from untrustworthy
0: sources, or they
1: will find themselves as adults unable to deal with certain things. But it's more these topics are going to come up in your teenager's life at some point, there's no way to avoid them forever. And it's almost like that political term, it's like you want to control the message. So the risk is you don't talk to your kids about porn, because you might come from a, you know, conservative family that doesn't believe in sex before marriage, there's nothing wrong with that value. But your kid will go and find it out from somewhere else and get a very different understanding of it. Instead, I would say it is actually, you know, the families that are most scared of having these conversations that need to have them. So that conversation can be, you know, you know, we don't believe in this, but there is something out there. And if you ever see it, you need to understand X, Y, and Z about it. Or, and I talk about this in the book, ask someone else to have the conversation with your teen about it, you know, an aunt or an uncle or the school counselor or whoever it is. Say, you know, we don't feel comfortable talking about this, but we want our child to know about it.
0: Yes. And I think that idea of being with reality, mm. just because we don't want our young people or we don't want to talk about things, doesn't mean it doesn't have to happen. And when we start to avoid these awkward and challenging conversations, then it just gets more awkward and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I often laugh. I spend a lot of time working in independent schools, all girls' schools, and I would say, if I don't have this conversation with you, I know you're going to have it with your closest 25 mates and what your 25 mates have to say is not always really that helpful compared to just getting some facts.
1: Yeah, I gave and received terrible advice as a 14-year-old.
0: I look back now and i just in hysterics to think about how we used to talk about things. We would talk all lunchtime, all recess, all afternoon, all evening and... It was group rumination. Now I look back on it, it's the same thing over and over again and then it can get more sensationalised and more dramatic. The smallest thing, a look in the corridor by the end of the day, is significant. And you're right. I think one of the things, especially teenage girls, are not great at, and I say
1: this having been one, is finding perspective. If anything, they make things bigger. And they do that because they love and they're supportive. But actually making a topic bigger and bigger means you lose all perspective of the issue and that can be really scary. You know, I'm always saying to students, go have a glass of water. Go for. Oh, do you know what I have? Actually, this is the greatest hack. This is the greatest pastoral hack you will ever hear go to the news agency or the shop and buy those scuffy shoe polish, you know, the built-in thing with the sponge. So they come into my office and they're like, Miss TV, Sarah. And I was like, okay, can you just go out and polish your shoes and then come back in? And they're like, but it's actually, it's almost a mindfulness thing because then they're focusing on that. And it just gives them like a two minute break from the hyped up nature of where they're at. And then they come in and they're calmer and they're like ready to talk.
0: That is such a wonderful hack. And I remember <laughs> when I was in pastoral roles, initially I used to jump in as soon as there was some kind of, Drama, some kind of argument. I remember one day in the afternoon, I walked past the locker rooms, and two students were just at each other verbally. Both of them had flipped their lids. It was all on, and they were really good friends. And they left for the day. I had a quick chat to them and said, "I'll chat to you in the morning." Mm. And that whole night, I was stressed out. I was thinking, "They're such good friends. There, I can't believe they've spoken to each other like this. This is just... Oh, I can't believe it." The next morning, they're skipping down the hallway together. You know, they completely got over it. And it's really interesting to think about what young people are going through now compared to what our experience is like. I remember I used to be at school and you'd have all these conversations and then you'd go home and then you may speak to one person on the phone or two people on the phone, and then I'd get dads, come on, wind it up, and you'd be off the phone, where now that intensity doesn't leave them. It's kind of the same as it is for grown-ups, right? Like this idea of you don't actually
1: leave your office because your email's on your phone. For teens, they don't leave the playground. Playground continues to exist in group chats on Snapchat, on Instagram, and so you don't get that distance from it that ability to kind of step out of a situation and look at it from with some perspective is a really important skill for teens to learn And it's one of the ones I put in the um, in the book is around perspective and saying to your teenager. And this is something from the University of Pennsylvania's positive psychology stuff, the the put it in perspective activity. So it's like, okay, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? What's the best possible thing that could happen? And what's the most likely thing that's happening right now? And, you know, the example is always, you know, you get called into the principal's office. Worst case scenario, being expelled, not getting a reference, never going to finish school. My life is over. Best case scenario is never as dramatic as the worst case scenario, right? So it's like, oh, they want to say good work on an essay. And it's like, no, the best case scenario is you've become head girl three years ahead of time. You've just got a full scholarship. University's already accepted you. That is the best case equivalent to your worst case. But we never naturally think that positively. And then you go, okay, what's the most likely thing? Well, the most likely thing is we're going to talk about something that happened or There's an open day and they want me to talk to the new parents. But it is so natural to kind of go worst case, but we never think of that best case scenario.
0: And that's a good reminder for all of us that we can all go to that worst case scenario. We can catastrophize and get that real intensity when we're not taking time, when there's not space. And I love the idea to think about that for a lot of us, our workplaces are at our homes now Mm. that's the same thing for our young people so how can we design more pockets of respite from the intensity of the world you know, I often think about when I was younger, making a phone call, especially to a boy, there was so much preamble, like there was a conversation at school, there was a, what if their dad answers, what are their, what are their sister answers? And Yeah, there was this thing on Twitter that was like,
1: can you believe that 20 years ago uh, the phone would ring and you wouldn't know if it was going to be your dad's boss, the utilities company, your boyfriend or your brother's soccer coach? And you all survived that. How is that possible? It's very funny. I think. Um. I think you're right. And I think also, you know, this is something that teens are learning as their brains are developing, while adults are learning it fully developed. So you think about, you know, that idea of compartmentalizing, or I, you know, I would. I know you talk about them as well, but that idea of having boundaries around your day. And so kids are learning about boundaries if they're being taught them at the same time as adults are learning about boundaries. So, you know, I'm a single mum, got my kids half the time. So I often get asked to go to things and then they're like, oh, can you do this thing on a Monday night? And I said, no, I've got the kids. And I am so quick to say no if I've got the kids. But I know that for some people saying no to things is really difficult actually having the kids on my own has made me better at boundaries because I get my meaning and fulfilment from them. I don't need to go and do a panel or something if I've got them because for me, having them is more important. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I also think that when we have people that are dependent on us, it's easier then to hold boundaries. Compared to maybe if it was a Monday night and you didn't have the kids and you didn't particularly want to go, there may be more tension around that discussion. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. Oh, if it's just me, I'm own. So the weekends I don't have the kids, I end up just doing a bazillion things because I've got no reason to say no to things. And so that's, you know, clearly on my own, I'm terrible at boundaries, but when it has to do with the kids, I'm really good at it. So it is that thing of I'm learning it at the same time as kids are learning it.
0: And knowing that our young people haven't been able to strengthen that muscle of all of these awkward conversations or having that feeling, I remember that feeling in our house when the phone, there was no more phone calls. Yes. And so if dad answers, oh, sorry, she's in bed where I'm on the other side of the phone, just dying inside, like, no, I'm not in bed. I'm not in bed. And I look back on that now with gratitude to think we had space. Yeah, We had pockets of time where we could rest and when we can rest then we can sleep deeply we not didn't have our phones under our pillows we didn't have this intensity and I know plenty of adults that have phones next to their bed in their beds wake up in the night go on their phone it's not just a teen thing and we think about these as teen issues which they are but they are also community issues that we're all struggling with so if young people aren't yeah. seeing adults have boundaries have space have time away from their technology it's hard for them to do it because they're not seeing it yeah
1: exactly no it's really true and and that's why I think a lot of the stuff in the book is actually there's stuff around role modeling there you know it's stuff like hey maybe you need to learn about this at the same time as your kids need to learn about this so one of the things I talk about in the life skills section is how gendered are your are your chores you know is your son taking the garbage out and your daughter's unpacking the dishwasher or whatever it is like make sure you're aware of this and and make it fair
0: yeah. As I was reading your book, I'm like, this is a life guide for everybody. If everybody worked through these 50 questions, they would feel more informed. But I also think more confident because that knowledge is power to have this self-knowledge of who am mm. I? What are my strengths? What are my values? And out of all the questions I read in the book, the my most favorite question, which I loved, which is not an actual numbered question, but a favorite question was, what do you want your relationship with your kids to be like when they grow up?
1: Well, that's the whole premise of the book. So with the first book, which was 50 Risks to Take with Your Kids, which was for little ease, it was very much like how to raise a 10-year-old that you would want to hang out with. You know, like my kids are, you know, eight and five, and they're really fun to hang out with. We have these awesome conversations. They can be annoying as well. But with this one, it's like, actually, how do you raise an adult that wants to hang out with you? Because, you know, that that idea of, you know, when you lose all authority and they move out of home... How do you know they're going to call you and want to spend time with you? And it's only really in those teenage years that is kind of sorted out.
0: And it's also when they're pulling away and doing that separation, but they're never completely separate. There's this underlying connection that's happening all the time and you're building up this capacity for them to come back. I often think about, you know, when you're younger, you think your parents have no idea and they're so hard and I can't believe they're making all these rules and mum and dad, I would say to mum and dad, but everybody's going. And then they'll just turn around and say, no because you're not so not everybody's going oh you're so mean and now I look back I think oh I'm so glad that they had the strength to say no to me and to put boundaries in place I was definitely not glad in that moment when I was missing out on things but I'm glad now or when I did go to that party that I've somehow worked uh, white lies and just sort of twisted a few little things and I got there and realised that I was completely out of my depth and yeah. going to the bathroom and catching my breath I think, what have I done here? I'm not meant to be here. Yeah. And then also knowing that I could call and explain what had happened and they would come and pick me up. So having that beautiful balance is mm. such a gift and that's why relationships are so important. And as you say, relationships are built on these conversations. You're listening to the School of Wellbeing podcast with Meg Durham. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you will find out about Thrive by Design, my workplace wellbeing program. Energy by Design, my game-changing program for educators, and Impact by Design, helping student leaders have an impact in their school community. As the world is opening up and live events are happening, I am back on stage. If you are looking for a wellbeing speaker that can share information that makes sense with your audience, please reach out. I love to share wellbeing education that makes sense. Let's get back to my conversation with Daisy Turnbull. So what are the benefits of leaning into awkward and difficult conversations?
1: Well, anything awkward gets less awkward when it's faced, right? So a monster named is far less scary. And knowing that your teen will come to you when there are awkward moments is a really good thing as well. For your teen to know that you're not afraid of awkward conversations means that they will hopefully come to you when there are more awkward conversations to happen. And I think also the other thing here, and I talk about it a bit, how important and how brilliant it is for kids to have more than just their parents to talk to. And I'm just so lucky because I have great friends, well, my parents, but also great friends who will come and hang out with the kids. And to the kids, they are part of that village. I used to think that that was bad, like it was I was spreading the time I have with the kids too thin by having other adults around. But they love seeing other adults, and and we know everyone knows that it is good for kids to have a village of people around them. The whole nuclear family thing is not how we were designed to be raised, and you look at things like parental burnout and teen anxiety and all these things, and you kind of go, well, is part of the cause of that, the fact that we've got like one mother, one father, or, you know, two months, two fathers, this nuclear family structure that puts so much pressure on parents and means kids don't have anywhere else to go.
0: It's a really interesting point. And then that takes sometimes courage on a parent's behalf to open up their young people's minds to a whole range of different people that someone may be interested in this, someone may be interested in that. They may do things that you don't particularly have an interest in or don't like. You never know. Your child may really connect with that person.
1: I have a friend who is a massive nerd and I love him dearly. And he is really into Minecraft. He is the greatest gift to me because Jack will play Minecraft with him and he's having fun. Jack's having fun. And I feel like I'm getting the credit for not having to
0: play Minecraft. Yeah, and then you don't feel that emotional labour of I've got to figure out Minecraft. At the moment, our youngest has just got into Pokemon, and I'm thinking I thought there was just one Pokemon. Now I'm learning that there's much more than one. Oh no, you got to catch them all! <laughs> like, oh, there's like this whole new world.
1: Yeah, I have another girlfriend who's really into Pokemon. Like, I had forgotten that she was into Pokemon, and so she had this great chat with Jack and Alice about Pokemon's, and I'm just sitting like. I am just so lucky to have you in my life because I I don't, sorry, there's no room at the inn. There is no room at the inn for Pokemon right now.
0: Yes, and that's the beauty of having adults around to have these conversations with and not just for our young people but for us as teachers and parents to have a lot of people to have conversations with. And that's some of the beautiful work that I do is that amongst busy spaces, if it's homes, schools, organisations, to create an opportunity for people to stop, to connect and to think and ask questions you see the whole body just relax like oh this is what I've been yearning for a deep and meaningful conversation and it gets my head out of the stress of everyday life and it reminds me of my values Mm. what's important and how to take courageous action moving forward yeah exactly exactly and so conversations really can strengthen relationships and I know in my experience sometimes it's the most awkward conversations that you don't want to have but once you've had it You feel like your relationship's stronger for it.
1: And I think that learning that, again, that is something that a lot of adults are learning as adults. But if you could learn that as a teenager and have that in your arsenal, it would just make life so much easier.
0: It's interesting. As a teacher, every now and then you come across a student that does have this internal self-knowledge and has this strength Mm. and just calls things in the moment. And it's quite breathtaking to watch because it's not what we've seen growing up. No, exactly.
1: And those students that have that and you just go, what is it? How how are you there? Yeah, it's amazing. It is, um, I, and you know, and I, I did write that book, you know, with my underlying belief that teenagers are amazing. You know, I'm, I am, whenever I say this, people think I'm crazy. I would lower the voting age to 16. You know, I think we've been teaching them how to construct arguments and think about really complex issues since they were 12. Even my son does persuasive writing. And yet we don't take them seriously when it comes to the world they live in and the world they'll inherit. And that's something that I think we should really be doing.
0: I really agree with that. I spent the day not long ago with a whole group of prefects from a beautiful school and the conversations that we had over the course of that day, I was thinking we are in safe hands. The future looks so bright. Some of the topics that we talk about, if it's inclusion or diversity for these young people, they don't even blink. There's no tension there. It's just, of course, people are different. He, her, they don't, Worry. It's not a thing. But to have those same conversations in a staff room, sometimes there's a lot more intensity and a lot more challenge around it. Where our young people are growing up in this world of being witness to so much more and seeing so many different role models. And I'm quite excited to see how they lead us.
1: Yeah, I think the next 10 years are going to be really interesting to see. Yeah, it's fascinating.
0: And also to think about all the conversations that they have been exposed to that we were never exposed to. Some of that has a dark side it's not all strengths and unicorn and rainbow there's some dark side with that but if we can marry that up with your approach of being honest asking questions and I love what you said in the book around you don't have to have the answers no and I think that's a really important point because actually the question should be asking your teen what they think about a thing you know
1: have some ideas of what your thoughts are obviously don't go in with no idea on a topic but if you go in and go hey what do you think about this or what do you understand about this topic I think that's really important. Because kids don't want to be spoken to didactically. They want to be part of a conversation. You know, you're right. There is a lot more darkness that we talk about with teens. But I wouldn't say, yes, there's huge increases in mental health issues in teenagers today. But I also think it's because we're able to talk about it. And I think that ability to talk about it and also that ability to see mental health issues and getting through mental health issues as a strength of experience rather than as somehow a failure is a really important one to be able to talk to people about.
0: Yes, and to think about all of these young people that are witnessing incredible stories of strength, moving through mm. struggle, and that creates a blueprint for them. And the conversations around that creates a blueprint of, oh, just because I'm feeling like this now doesn't mean it has to be like that forever.
1: They, they've gone through it before, like that. they've got that experience. They know how to climb this mountain or the experience of that small hill Will help them with this mountain.
0: And that's a beautiful thing that if we allow more opportunities to experience life, to have awkward conversations, to lean in to the realities of life, then they can build their confidence. They can't build their confidence without being out in the world.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: And I love it in the book, you said, encourage them to go on dates, encourage them to do things so they can learn from it.
1: Yeah, and you know, the dating stuff is so interesting because I just don't think it's something that, that we think of as a good thing, but it's an experience that we all need to know how to do.
0: And it's getting harder and we know lots of adults, so, you know, it's hard now. It's a different world. So we need to practice getting out, talking to people, doing really interesting things, having some really awkward conversations and knowing that we will survive on the other end. So I'd love to know from you, Daisy, what are some awkward conversations that you've had to work through yourself and how did you do it?
1: Um, Okay, so I've had many awkward conversations with students. You know, I've had conversations with students around, um, I think... I think the thing that makes conversations with students that can be awkward is when at the heart of it, you and the student have very different value systems on something. And I think it's really important when you're talking to students to not just try to tell them exactly what it is you think on a topic, but really try and understand their logic chain. I've had conversations in classrooms where a student will say something that it almost sounds like, you know, okay, I think one thing that can be very awkward, I think a lot of teachers have heard this, is when you're talking about something that does touch on politics, teenagers often do just kind of spout whatever they they hear their parents say, and they don't necessarily understand what they've said. And so it can be awkward, but it's also a great, you know, humbling experience to really try and understand what that student means and pull that out so that they can reflect on what they're saying. Do you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So I think it's kind of like, oh, okay, so, you know, that's a really interesting perspective and I wonder, you know, how do you feel that perspective fits with this perspective or this issue? So if you think about this from that perspective, how might it apply to another situation, you know? And so I think that they're examples of awkward conversations. Yeah, and then I guess as a parent, oh look, so many awkward conversations, um, and just hilarious conversations. So the because you know my kids are still young, there is this wonderful um innocence to what they say, and there is this perfection in their logic chain, but then like sometimes quite big gaps. The lateral thinking is perfect, but the, the information they're working with is, is a limited. Um, And then as a human, like all the time, you know, awkward conversations around, I guess it's for me it's always around the awkwardness isn't the topic. The awkwardness comes from the differing value propositions. So, you know, you are talking to someone who fundamentally does not believe in climate change. That is an awkward conversation. Talking to someone who you agree with on climate change makes climate change a great conversation to talk about. Talking to someone who doesn't think there's a problem with the way consent is taught in schools is an awkward conversation. The topic isn't what makes it awkward. The
0: dynamic between the people is what makes it awkward. Yes, I love thinking about that clash of values and sometimes that clash of values makes us want to run from the conversation and step away from the conversation and then just go towards the people that you know agree with us and it's going to be easy then thinking about the benefits of leaning into those conversations and trying to get to a point of I can see where you're coming from I can see how you've got to this conclusion I'm not saying that I agree with it but spending that time to really understand how you got there and another awkward conversation that I have and over the years time and time again is when I'm starting to change my view on things where I was with um, a friendship group or in a work situation where we've always had the same conversations and I've gained new insight or I've learned and started to see that oh this is not how I want to be in the world as I'm growing up and I'm learning. And that can be quite awkward, those shifts in dynamics over time. Exactly.
1: But I think also that idea of being able to approach things willing to change your mind is an important one.
0: And it's such a skill to be able to be with new information that is counter to what you know and to see, ah, that makes sense. I'm willing to change my mind. And I think that is the beauty Of really good conversations because if you can be in a conversation and not as defensive and really listen you may be able to form your opinion in a different way that you never thought before because you are willing enough to listen and I think that's the same with our young people if we can have conversations with them in a way that they're willing enough to listen we can start to shape their thinking and behavior I know for me every time I wanted to talk with someone it's going for a walk or can you help me with the display? I would never do a sit down, let's chat eye to eye. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. I don't think people are designed to talk that way either.
0: Not at all. You know, like we have our best conversations even with partners or family members in the car going for a walk. If we're going to have these conversations, setting ourselves up for success. So do you have some tips when it comes to conversations and asking questions? How can we set ourselves up for success?
1: Okay, so there's an important thing about you said the when. So yes, walking or in the car is good. I also think having it around a job So while you're unpacking the dishwasher, while you're making dinner, because this creates a time limit because you don't want to talk about porn for three and a half hours. And I think also having aware, so whether or not that's a kind of, yeah, in the kitchen, don't go into your team's room unless they've asked you. And being kind of respectful of spaces and who you are talking around, like don't have a conversation around something really sensitive with younger siblings in the room. The other thing is, yeah, do think about the who. It could be an aunt or an uncle or a family friend is better place to have this conversation. So they're my main tips. When you think about it from that perspective, you know, you think about, you know, think about like wanting to break up with someone. You think about where you want to do that. You want it, you know, you don't want it to be ding down to a five course dinner. You want that to be something you can get out of quickly. You know, it's kind of like that. you got to think about what's the best way to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, and thinking of that strategy beforehand because you don't want to be in the mains thinking I've still got to have this. Yeah, they're trying to organise a holiday in a few weeks and I'm trying to end it. (laughs) What am I going to do? That is really, really tough. And we do get ourselves into these situations because it is hard to have some kinds of conversations. The more we can do it, the better we can get at it. We can look at questions. And you said in the book, you know, questions act as door openers to conversations. So if we can start practicing asking more open-ended questions, we can start to practice having these conversations and then dealing with attention when it doesn't go quite to plan exactly exactly and I love how you brought up that point about we can put so much pressure on ourselves either as a parent or a teacher to know everything to be the one to have all the answers to all the conversations where there's a whole range of people mm-hmm. at schools there are specialists that can talk about certain topics
1: yeah exactly and I think that's a really important point Meg, because yes there are other people at schools but don't assume schools will do everything so it's that balance there
0: Absolutely. And I was very fortunate. And I think my parents are actually quite fortunate now looking back that I've got um, a brother and sister that are 10 and nine years older than me. And so they had a lot of conversations with me, which worked out really well because I'm sure mum and dad didn't want to have those conversations with me at the time. To have that conversation with my brother, who's nine years older than me, it's such a gift. Yeah, exactly. And so spreading the load. We don't have to have the 50 conversations that night. We can spread it out.
1: No, do not do it all at once. Do it as slowly. You know, you've got six years of the teen years. So do them as slowly as
0: you want. Is there anything else you'd like teachers or parents to think about when it comes to having meaningful conversations? I think just start
1: having them. And what is meaningful to a team could be a lot smaller than you think. So just the conversation itself is meaningful
0: so beautiful. Daisy, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you. And being an advocate in this space to create conversations and to get out and do it. So to wrap up this conversation, I have an invitation for you to complete four sentences. Okay. I am inspired by. Teenagers. Yes, how good are they? When life feels hard. When life feels
1: hard, I am still learning to do less and that's something
0: I'm still learning to do. An underrated skill is. Crochet. (laughs) I had a feeling you may have said that. (laughs) Yeah, that looks beautiful. Daisy's just held up her latest work of art and I am looking forward to. I'm looking forward to going
1: overseas with my kids in the next holidays, hopefully, you know, COVID and everything allowing, but um, I'm looking forward to travelling again.
0: Thank you, Daisy, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this conversation has inspired you to create more opportunities to connect with the people in your life. To learn more about Daisy's incredible work in the world, you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter. And I highly recommend that you get your hands on a copy of her two books, 50 risks to take with your kids and 50 questions to ask your teens. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. Number one. From this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? And number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well being? Subscribe to my Thought of the Week newsletter to find out what I'm working on, upcoming events, and everything that I'm currently loving, including books, podcasts, and shows. If you're interested in participating in Energy by Design next term, join the wait list now and be the first to know when enrollments open. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and Spotify and share with your family, friends and colleagues. Thank you for listening to the School of Wellbeing podcast. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes.